Happy New Year. Welcome to the first episode of 2023. I'm Bon Q, the host of Design Lab, a podcast where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? On today's show, we hear from an economist turned healthcare entrepreneur, talk about how she is designing the healthcare workforce of the future. The healthcare industry is the largest employer in the United States, over 20 million people. But each month, over 500,000 are quitting the healthcare workforce. Today's guest is our very good friend, Dr. Norma Padrone. She is a Latina and first-generation economist. She founded Empirical Lab, a company specializing in peer-to-peer training within healthcare organizations to accelerate their digital transformation. Norma earned her PhD in health policy and management from Yale University. Norma has held leadership roles across the healthcare industry, including academia, nonprofit, and private sector roles. Her teams have leveraged data analytics and technology to improve digital health products for both patients and providers, design value-based care models, and quality and performance measurement and training. Norma's company, Empirical Lab, has received funding from programs like the AWS Impact Accelerator for Women Founders and the Techstars Workforce Development Program. If you haven't already, visit designlabpod.com where you can find show notes from each week, learn about our guests, and get links to related content from each episode. There, you can subscribe to our VIP Listener Club and get links right into your email inbox whenever a new episode drops. We usually drop episodes every Thursday morning. And our producer, Rob Leglisi, will promise not to send you a ton of emails. Instead, he will send you a fun surprise now and then for being part of our loyal audience. Support the Design Lab podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, giving us five stars, leaving us a review, and telling someone about the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Norma Patron. Norma Patron, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here, Bon. Thank you for the invite. Well, we we are good friends. I've learned so much from you as a health economist, and you have transitioned into your own startup company which is very cool. So can you tell us about your startup company and what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, thank you. So Empirical Lab is a cloud-based platform that helps teams in healthcare organizations collaborate, share insights, conduct peer-to-peer training. And so the way to think about it is, you know, you have project management platforms and then you have some learning management systems, many of which people don't necessarily like or are happy with. And we're bridging both of them. And so we're using the opportunity that as teams deploy their own products, projects, particularly in digital health, in healthcare technology, they can use that opportunity to collaborate and conduct peer-to-peer training. As you know, a lot of the projects in healthcare technology, they require clinical teams, business teams, data analytics and technology teams, sometimes even vendors. And so we're the platform that brings all of that together and helps them organize, catalog, and index that information so that they can they can accelerate their digital transformation. I love it. What was the inspiration for doing this? Because you are a health economist and you work in academia, 
you've worked in the private sector and had held a lot of great positions and it's a big leap to do this. So I'm just curious to know what was that thought process? You know, it feels that for me, at least that I've been working sort of on the same topic for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. I think the connecting thread is how can we make healthcare more accessible? How can we make healthcare less confusing? And then how can we just make it better? Mm. And so from an academic standpoint, I started working, as you know, in New York and conducting research on how to redesign services. And the goal of that work was, you know, thinking about populations that are really hard to reach, complex populations that have multiple chronic conditions, mm -hmm. and then thinking, how do we organize the services to deliver better care for them? And then when I left academia, I worked a lot with the teams behind the scenes, the data analytics teams, the mm -hmm. population health teams that are basically working with a lot of the data and technology to deliver their services. Before launching the company, I was working at a large company here in the U.S. that allowed me to work with digital health companies, research digital health companies. And our goal there was to help them find scale, to get those digital technologies faster to our, to our members. And so, so I'm very glad I feel is sort of like a continuation of the work that I've yeah. been doing, which is... All right, I've been convinced, I've seen it through and through, that data and technology really is right for scale, mm. that we can do a lot of good work for patients and caregivers. But I think that what has been forgotten, or the big insight for me has been that we've forgotten that human in the loop is mm. necessary. It's a necessary condition. We still need humans? We can't just use machines? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> We'd actually need humans behind the scenes, really monitoring and observing and evaluating and putting that human touch to digital health technologies. And so mm. the very glad focuses on that. It's, it's, mm. I feel it's a continuation of my work. Like yeah. for me, it feels like I've been working on the same things just from different angles, but it's really focused on those teams. And you know them, they're the ones that we go to their offices and beg them for that data query. <laughs> you know, we ask them to please help us on this and that. And I feel like those teams, those data analytics, digital innovation teams within healthcare, they're under a lot of pressure, you know, and we want to be a tool for them. So that's the genesis of it. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about how healthcare is not prepared for this digital transformation. And how is your company doing filling in that gap? And what are some stats on there on the lack of healthcare workforce for this digital transformation? Yeah. So, I mean, the healthcare workforce, again, when we think of it, we think a lot of the clinical workforce, like, like yourself, rightly so. We should care a lot about doctors and nurses. And, and certainly we do. I think that what doesn't have a lot of attention yet is that, you know, Healthcare as a sector is the largest employer in the U.S. Wait, the larger than? The largest, the absolute largest. 20 million people are employed in the healthcare sector, which represents over a trillion dollars in annual payrolls. Annual. Wow. <laughs> so so, we, so beat out, we beat out like Amazon and Walmart, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Retail, manufacturing, all of those sectors are not in terms of workforce as we... I feel like people don't know this, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. why is that? 
Well, I mean, there's many reasons, right? But I think if we also consider that as an item within our GDP, the healthcare sector is one of the largest. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, the humans behind it are also, you know, some of the largest. So more than just like doctors and nurses, right? Correct. Correct. That's only a fraction. The whole workforce, exactly. So doctors and nurses are a fraction of that, including allied professionals in healthcare public health professionals, technology, of course, and everyone in between. Of that workforce, 77% are women. 77? I did not know that. I will definitely send you the stats for your listeners. Yeah. So 16.4 million out of the total 21.2 million workers are women. Why is that? That is a, that is, (laughs) that's huge. It's huge. It is huge. And so as a sector, as a place of work, when we think of this concept of the future of work, which is Mm -hmm. how technology has transformed work, workplace, and workforce, well, it comes to mind that no largest sector exists to be transformed as is healthcare. Mm. And so, and, 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 you know, and technology has entered in ways that I think haven't been as empathetic. I've had the good fortune of working closely with colleagues like yourself. And, you know, that the environment when it comes to technology, oftentimes that part of the workforce feels that they haven't participated. They've been given technologies. They haven't deliberately been asked what those technologies mean to them. So I think that that's a lot of our impetus. I mean, I have a background in economics. I care a lot about human capital when it comes to health and education. I feel like I'm working at the intersection of. Yeah. I've joked with you many times before that you're the economist that has a heart about healthcare and actually cares. (laughs) I appreciate that. I've been humbled. I think I told you some years ago, I was very cocky, I think, when I started. It's very cocky. I think that economics gives you this power. Well, you're an economist, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then working with clinical colleagues and seeing them in the trenches. It's been an honor, I think. I've had my office inside hospitals. And so I think that that's been genuinely an honor, but also a very humbling and eye-opening experience. Well, part of your training as economists is to like, predict the future, isn't it? You do all this economic forecasting. And uh-huh. <laughs> and so you've been trained to do that. So I'm curious to know, looking into Norma's crystal ball on the future of healthcare, what sort of trends do you see coming in the upcoming years? Yeah, I love that question because I think like the most economist answer that I could give you is like, it depends, but I'm not going to answer <laughs> We're experiencing a cycle when it comes to technology where the challenges to a large extent are in developing new technologies, but it is about adoption and diffusion. Mm. And so we do find ourselves today in a point where you do have tools and technologies that could do hospital-grade remote patient monitoring, right? Mm. Keeping patients safe and with high-quality care at home in some instances and in some settings. And now the question is, how do we adopt and diffuse this technology so that they reach the majority of patients and caregivers where they need it the most? Mm. One of the challenges really that I think we have today is that 
there is very low adoption or in relative terms, lower adoption of remote monitoring and visual care in rural areas mm. where we know those are the areas they would benefit the most. Mm. Right. For now, those who don't understand this adoption of healthcare now, technologies, now. what does that actually mean? Yeah. So let's say that you have a chronic disease program to prevent diabetic foot ulcers, mm. right? And when you have an amputation, this changes quality of life tremendously for patients and caregivers. Really, you, you truly want to avoid, get to a point where, and you're the doctor here, so I don't want to misspeak, but you know, you truly want to avoid getting to a point where diabetes is mismanaged or old pressure ulcers appear yeah. in an amputation needs to happen. And so there are devices on the market that could really help monitor and prevent this from happening. What I've noticed in my experience is that these tools and technologies need to map out to IRL. You can't just, you know, throw that technology and hope for the best. Someone needs to be at the other end, mm. making sure, monitoring the data, having the right triggers. What happens if the data comes in in a specific way? What do you deploy? What are the resources? And it, you know, it truly comes down to human in the loop. Mm. We're not at a point yet where an engineer can build a software and we could just release it out onto healthcare and it, we could see it work. Well, we are at that point where the engineers have released this technology, but validated that they were gone through strenuous testing. And now we're at a point where how do we empower the folks on the front lines, right? Mm. These are your federally qualified health clinics, your places of care, community hospitals, even pharmacies, perhaps, that could be monitoring these tools and devices so that the scale of the technology reaches the patients, but there is a qualified clinician behind mm. that is ultimately this human force behind the technology. Yeah. And so we're at a point where how do we train the staff that needs to work operationalizing this. And I, I kind of don't like the word operationalizing, but you know what I mean? It yeah. means just bringing it to life. Yeah. So that's human. It's mm. absolutely human. Mm. <laughs> so that's where we are. And that's a challenge is in when technologies become mature. And so I do believe that in the digital health space and the virtual care and remote monitoring and sensor devices space, we're reaching maturity. I totally feel that pain point. Sorry to interrupt, but just for the audience, when every clinician has experienced this of getting a new EHR electronic health record system, oh, yeah. and it oh. is painful. Like you literally, it's not like, oh, here's a new web browser. I'm going to open up Google and figure it out yourself. They're so difficult. And oh. that we had to go to these mandatory like eight hour, like literally eight hour all day training sessions in order to learn the new EHR. And it is a painful process. I mean, we had a team from the company, which is like Epic, wow. like literally own a floor in, in our healthcare system. And they had like full-time employees, like dozens of them, like hundreds of them preparing us for this change of a new EHR in our hospital system. So yeah, we needed like, hours and hours of training so i can imagine with all these new technologies coming out that who's going to do that training well that's us that's what we want to do <laughs> and also we want to make it less painful but i think so there's something that is interesting in what you're saying which is listen up until 2012 less than 
80% of hospitals had electronic health records. It's still relatively wow. that the majority of hospitals, right? Like we're entering year 10, that the majority of hospitals have electronic health records. These are still newer forms of working. I mean, in 10 years, you've had probably a couple of rounds, right? Of cycles, right? Of people coming in and out of systems and job transitions and whatnot. But it's still early innings. And for the teams that we work with, not only are they sometimes still undergoing the adoption of electronic health record, but now they have this emerging forms of data. Mm. So clinical data, right? EHR. Then there's billing data. That's another type of data. There's mm. business data, operations data, hospital quality and performance data, right? Mm. They're tracking hospital quality infections, all of yeah. that. And now there's a new forms of data sets, plural, coming into their desk that are, oh, and here's this new format. Now we're doing sensors. Here's this mm. new data. Now we're doing hospital home models. Yeah. These are the teams that we're serving. They are really undergoing huge, huge transformation. That is, it's almost dizzying when you speak about all these different types of data sets. And I was wondering, you know, you talk to a lot of companies in healthcare, a lot of startup companies. And do you have any favorite ones out there that you've seen of newer technologies that you're like, whoa, this is really going to, this is really going to change things? Mm, that's a question. Let's see. I'm not going to name names, but I can tell you the spaces, uh-huh. the spaces that I think are very ripe. So in musculoskeletal, remote monitoring for physical therapy and mm. exercise, there are tools out there. So of course, you could watch a YouTube video and do your squats or whatever yeah. and do pre-surgery and your post-surgery exercises. Mm. But there are some tools out there that can map you out. They're they're using AI to map your joints, you know, and then they can give you warnings when you're not doing the exercise correctly. So someone who Um, has gotten their ACL repair from it, from a knee injury. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, no. I threw my ACL a few years ago. And then then part of recuperating is going to a brick and mortar facility with a PT and yeah. doing rehab exercises. So so there are companies in this space that you're saying that are yeah. maybe you could do all virtual. You can get the assignment. So you can get the exercise assigned to you. The apps that I've seen allow you to record yourself. Plus the AI tells you if you're actually flexing the joints, you know, and moving your muscles the way you should. So they mm-hmm. give you the warning. And they report back to your assigned physical therapist who can take a look at and say, all right, so why don't we try this again? And why don't we do this? You might still want to go to a brick and mortar space, but the fact that you can do it at home, you know, as someone who recovered for seven months from from my ACL situation, um, you know, it's if you could go two times, three times in person and then manage the rest remotely. I'm also very excited. So a couple of things, right? Fall prevention at home. In the mm, oncology, radiation oncology setting, you know, when you discharge patients back to home, they're fragile, they might be at risk of falling. Uh-huh. Can we preemptively reduce the risk of falls at home? Mm. And using sensors, you can. So I'm, I'm excited about well, this. Well, uh, tell me about that technology. Uh, what, you put a chip in someone with cancer? No, when they, when, when they go home? You know, 
Well, this is what I love about the, when people speak about digital technology and digital health, the levels of expertise that must come together, right? Uh-huh. So you have sensors, which is a technology that has been devised, but the data models that can help you predict when a person, according to their own baseline, mm. is at risk of falling. So you need the data scientists to come in and, you know, check those algorithms. Huh. And so those that's basically the gist of it. So um, if it's like... You know, if your grandma who's 88 years old and on these type of medications, who has a little history of dementia, goes home, has maybe a a 40% chance of falling in the middle of the night when she's trying to use a bathroom or something like that. And so you can evaluate those risks and, and really, well, one, prevent them, but then two, decide whether or not to discharge. And I think that those those technologies are, again, very ripe for. And then the last one, I think that I'm also very excited of sensors for temperature. Mm. And temperature helps align things like what we were talking about for pressure ulcers for many things. And so I interviewed this founder, this is a couple of years ago, and she was telling me, you know, we, we don't have temperature as a, a vital sign that we track a lot, like over oh. our lives. And changes to baseline temperature are telling of many things. And so just more longitudinal tracking of temperature. Mm. Uh, changes in temperature, even within your body. So for pressure ulcers and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I want to click back onto that tab of economists predicting future trends. Yeah. What what other trend is exciting to you or what other trend do you see coming down the road? in healthcare so, from your lens of an economist? From my lens of economist, which again, like the true answer of one economist would be the <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna disappoint my my, <laughs> my my colleagues and discipline fellows, but you know, okay, so trend number one, I think that the adoption of technology, right? Uh-huh. I think that we're in that maturity space where really the challenge at hand is how do we adopt it and diffuse it? How do we scale valuable, high return, high impact technology? The second one is the workforce, and I'm not breaking news here, but I think I've sent to you some statistics, but we've had in the in the year 2022, we had about half a million employees in the healthcare workforce leaving, quitting. Yeah, these are crazy stats I know. that you sent. I just experienced that. I see a lot of nurses quitting at, in droves I've never seen before in my career, but can you say that stat again? It is. Many- yeah, about half a million employees in the healthcare workforce across, you know, clinical, non-clinical, but yeah. half a million per month left, quit. That some of them changed jobs and went to a new job within healthcare. Many left healthcare. Uh-huh. But according to Veroff Labor Statistics data, half a million people quit their jobs each month, right? Oh they might have gone again within the healthcare industry, but each month. So you had that staff turnover and some states you saw it go as as high as 30, 40%, Uh where meaning that for you as a patient, as a caregiver, you're experiencing your, you know, someone that you're working with might be their first week at their job. Or you might be going to a place that isn't fully staffed, which is, you know, you saw it. I think that the statistic that I saw on that is that almost 70% of people working in healthcare reported that their own day-to-day work had been affected by staffing shortages. Yeah. I'm raising my hand, me. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So workforce. And obviously I'm working in the space. And so I'm telling you, hey, this is very important. But 
just by the numbers. It's a crisis. No, I and I, as someone working clinically in the space, that I feel that pressure and I feel the pains of this current crisis every time I step into the hospital. You and I both have similar backgrounds where we are Americans, but both from immigrants' family. You're you're immigrant yourself, and <laughs> that has impacted my current work reflecting it back on my upbringing because we both actually did not have health insurance growing up as kids. And I remember going to the doctors and being horrified and feeling guilty for the expensive medical bills that my family who had worked in flea markets during that time had to pay for. And that inspired me to go into a specialty emergency medicine that we take all, treat all patients regardless of ability to pay. So I'm wondering how your past and upbringing has impacted your career in life. Yeah. I think that the profound curiosity, I think, or wondering why healthcare was so difficult. Mm. (laughs) I think that I don't know that I was, I mean, I was aware that getting sick was very risky. And I was very little, but I kind of knew, you know, don't get sick. (laughs) So you know, or don't fall, you don't have money for that. And so I think that that somehow puts, you know, sets in in your brain in some way that it's a mm. risky thing, that it's a yeah. scary thing beyond. Like, I, I don't know that as a kid, I was that scared of getting sick. I was scared of the expense. <laughs> and so I think that it sets in your brain, it really does. So I think that I was very interested. I mean, as a early on training in economics, I remember Maybe the thing that fascinated me was that the hardest things in economics, at least from my perspective, Mm -hmm. they were even harder in healthcare. If you were Mm -hmm. thinking about risky behaviors, you know, why do people do things that are irrational? What do people maybe smoke or drink or, you know, things like that? And it's like, well, if you study in the context of health, like if you cared about behaviors that aren't that predictable, nowhere they show up with more complexity than in healthcare. So so I think that, that that really shaped, I think later on, it became about, as we get sick, luckily, in this country, we get sick very few times in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so even if I've been studying healthcare or health economics, you know, for a while, like when I saw my clinical colleagues as colleagues, yeah, and I speak a lot about, I mean, I find that I should have not gotten a PhD in health economics without, <laughs> I, I spoke about this. Why did nobody tell me? <laughs> so, and I remember, again, like I was so cocky. I, I would say things like, well, you know, it's all about aligning incentives and surely it is over prescription prices, you know, <laughs> because we're all... And then once I saw my clinical colleagues and, and the staff within a healthcare system as colleagues and understood their complexities and how they work, and I would go to the huddles in the morning sometimes or the grand rounds and that, how their work is also really humbling to themselves, right? Like that sometimes they will tell you, you know, this is very hard. And you're like, but yeah. you're the smartest person I know. What do you mean this is hard? And they're like, this is really hard. So I guess like what got me into healthcare was my own personal story. What mm. kept me was working with people like you, mm. you know, that felt like that aha moment. It was very hard for me as a kid or as a patient, you know, like getting care. It's really hard to work in this space. Let's, yeah. let's fix that. Let's work on that. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Another question I want to ask is the role of creativity in your job. Both of us have experience. We've talked this about this before, the suppression of creativity in academia. And I'm curious to know what role has creativity played in your career? I've been very open about this, right? I think that by the time, you know, I go into a PhD, I had two masters already. And I think that I had this idea of what an academic would look like. I have this funny story about like, I was giving a presentation in grad school and someone suggested I drew, you know, this is, I wanted to have equations and I wanted to have like graphs and like, you know, and someone suggested that the model could be represented in a diagram that could I draw a diagram mm. and I remember just sort of feeling like, no, we don't use PowerPoint here. You know, it's amazing. Like, you know, it's still so many equations. Like, the farthest it is, the better. And so, like, bitch, you don't understand it. And so, I'm just kind of sharing this because I, like, that's the level that I, no one told me this. This is the idea, the weird idea that I'd established of how serious I had to be. How, mm. You know, no, we have to draw anything here, kind of thing. So anyway, I mean, this is just to say, I feel like for that part of my life, I suppress to the extent that I didn't even want to draw diagrams, right? And so there's that. I think that later on, when I moved, the further away I moved from the academic space and I went through the business world and technology yeah. world, constraints force you to get creative. Mm. And so- 100% agree. Right? Yeah. And in the quote unquote real world, you have constraints. Time, you have two days to do this. Money, no, you don't have the budget. Like you, you know, and people do like, you know, drawing things, you end up doing things, you end up hacking things. And so constraints get you, you know, this is like the only option. Yeah. So I've been more, I mean, and then as an entrepreneur, my God, like you're optimizing, it's like optimizing on steroids. You're optimizing <laughs> money, you're optimizing time, you're optimizing you know, everything. And so it forces you to be very creative. And I feel like I've never felt more creative in my life as now. So no way to suppress it. Otherwise you don't survive basically. Yeah. It's like a survival thing. You have to get creative. I you love have that. To yeah. I know this is like technically a holiday. So it's your, it's your day off. So and be sensitive to your time. I, I appreciate <laughs> you making some time for us. And if one of our listeners were to come visit you and yeah. take you out to eat, where, where would you take them out to? Okay. So I'm spending a lot of my time mostly in Austin, but also in New York. And so I'm going to say- Two of my you favorite know? cities. Love them. Two of your favorite cities. You live in Austin briefly, no? No, H Houston. Houston. Okay. Not, I mean, not, not as cool. Sorry for you people who live in Houston. All right. Right. <laughs> I really had a Texas connection. So in Austin, I will take them to Launderette. I like to go there. It's a cute spot. I like to sit at the bar. It's kind of like chef's counter style. So you get to see, you know, the folks cooking. There's always someone interesting at the bar. Wine is delicious. So highly recommend there. Yeah. And then in New York, there's this cute little spot as well that I also sit at the bar. <laughs> It's an Italian spot in Soho, and you even have to go down a few steps. Like, it's really Ooh, hidden, yeah. but I love it. So highly recommend those two. 
Awesome. Well, we're going to put Norma's restaurant recommendations in the show notes. So you can check them out next time you're in Austin and New York. And we'll also link to Empirica Lab. I'm so excited about the incredible work that you are doing. And, and thanks for coming on the show. It was awesome to reconnect. Thank you so much. Always, always great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Norma Padrone. You can find her on Twitter at N-O-R-M-A-P-A-D-R-O-N underscore. And reach out to me on Twitter. There it can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Carrieros. Theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.